HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Yolele, the revolutionary African foods company. Learn more at yolele.com. This week's episode of Meat in 3 is inspired by the reemergence of Cicada Brood 10. We're talking all about insects. Some people are calling crickets the gateway bug because that's a great introduction to what edible insects is all about. So we found detectable levels of cesium-137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had. Ah, what is that? Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. <laughs> oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. Listen to Meat and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mike Schreiber. Welcome to The Shameless Chef, the show that takes us back in time to home kitchens in the 1970s, but still has a lot to teach us today. I developed this show with Michael Davenport back in 1977. He was the original host of The Shameless Chef, and he shared his fearless attitudes toward food and encouraged home cooks to have fun and take risks in the kitchen. I'm excited to keep his legacy alive and share The Shameless Chef with you, on Heritage Radio Network. Today is our final episode of The Shameless Chef. In spotlighting Michael's personality and culinary insight over these 29 episodes has brought me so much joy. I mentioned early on that Michael used to refer to the program as more than just a list of recipes and favorite dishes, but rather he described it as a fooditude. He wanted people to develop their own attitude toward food, to bring their own personality to their cooking, the preparation, and the ambiance of what you put on the table. Now, 40 years after it was created, I hope The Shameless Chef has given you a renewed sense of adventure in your home kitchen. Our archive on your podcast feed and on Heritage Radio Network's website isn't going anywhere, so please share it with someone else who you think will adore The Shameless Chef as much as you do. Stay tuned for our credits to learn more about where to find other food podcasts from Heritage Radio Network, that I'm sure you're going to love. Thank you for going back in time with us, and please consider making a donation to Heritage Radio Network, who brought you this series back to life at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Our final episode is dedicated to dessert. So, without further ado, 
Here is Michael Davenport to entertain and delight with the richer things in life. It's being said that travel broadens one, and if one is an eater, a fancier of food, and if one travels, the broadening is not only cerebral, it's <laughs> abdominal. This is The Shameless Chef. I spent some time in Australia. There's an indigenous dessert from down under that is caloric beyond belief, and consequently most broadening. Let me introduce you to an Australian delight, the ever-popular pavlova. Imagine a dessert that's much like a giant toasted marshmallow spread across a 12-inch platter, toasted and crusty on the outside, sweetly gooey on the inside, and filled with sliced fresh fruit and topped with heavy whipped cream. Got that? Feel your acrylics melting? Does it give you an instant craving for insulin, like listening to the score of The Sound of Music? Well, that, my noble friend, is a pavlova. Now, I have no idea where the name comes from. It's as indigenously Australian as kangaroos and koalas, there, the gifty shops and the hardware purveyors sell pavlova plates with the recipe emblazoned in their center like, like pizza plates. Housewives vie with each other over recipes and techniques for pavlova. I would assume, although exhaustive research in Australia netted me nothing, that the name derives from the fact that the white meringue looks like the tutu of a ballet dancer and hence pavlova. I once remarked that it must have something to do with pavlov, what with dogs and salivating and such, and the comment was not taken kindly by my Australian friends. Now, I will send you the recipe, but it may be hazardous to your waistline, and you cook and eat it at your own risk. The courageous may want to drop me a line here at the station. You beat up egg whites and add a lot of sugar. You fill a cake pan with it, impressing the center slightly, and bake for some hour and a quarter, and the result is a giant meringue. It's fragile, slightly candied, and fluffy white with just a hint of toasty brown at the edges. This you fill with the fresh fruit of your choice, bananas, pineapples, strawberries, kiwi, passion fruit, and a melange of all of them. Top the whole thing with heavy whipped cream. Uh, huh? Well, take my sardonic attitude with a grain of salt and no gag intended. It's truly a spectacular dessert and very, very Australian indeed. This is Michael A. Davenport, the shameless chef. I contend it does no harm to indulge in a sugar fix now and then, and to that intent, the pavlova deserves... Bravos. Bravo. You're walking down the sidewalk on the street where you live, and you spy an unusual amount of cookie crumbs on the sidewalk. This should tell you in a trice what kind of neighborhood you live in. <laughs> Somebody, everybody has an attack of the munchies now and then. This is the shameless chef, so let's consider munchies. You stumble out of bed in the middle of the night and you go pawing about in the fridge because you cannot live without a sardine and green pepper sandwich. Or, you've been known to go through a whole package of Oreos and a quart of milk. Uh, you're grateful that you have two hands because you can use each for stuffing potato chips and peanuts into your mouth at the same time. You may be dotty. You may be pregnant. Uh, chances are you have the munchies. <laughs> it happens to all of us from time to time. Here's some first aid for attacks of this malady, as yet not recognized by eminent medical authorities. The best thing for the munchies is be prepared. You know what esoteric things you like to eat when the munchies come over you, so manage to keep them on hand. You can't waste time with the munchies. Immediate relief must be at hand. But I do have some suggestions as to quick munchies that can be prepared in less time than it takes to... Uh, 
to faint. <laughs> Keep packaged cookie mix on hand. Then when you want them, don't go through all that cutting and fiddling nonsense. Mix the whole batch, spread it out on a large baking pan, and bake it and then cut it into big hungry hunks and eat. You can't wait for an egg sandwich? Scramble eggs with some bread or toast crumbled up in them. It's a sloppy egg sandwich, but it's quick. Uh, don't forget the flavorings like garlic or onions or pepper or herbs, but don't waste time. How about uh, dip graham crackers in chocolate sauce much as you would dip uh, chips in cheese dip? That's a very quick munchy first aid. Munchies, after all, uh, should be sweet, shouldn't they? If you want to knock yourself out with sweetness, dip marshmallows in chocolate sauce. Uh-huh. Uh, a good middle-of-the-night munchie is milk toast. Put bread in the toaster or big hunks of bread in the oven to toast. Heat milk at the same time. Combine the two with a little salt, pepper, butter, and a little sugar. Uh, good for the munchies, and the milk toast will help you get back to sleep. Michael A. Davenport here. I've got to run. The munchies are attacking. Sometimes a superb dinner or luncheon is properly concluded with cheese and cold water biscuit. Sometimes fresh fruit and espresso are a fine way to end a meal. And then there are times when the dessert should be a production with trumpets. <laughs> this is Michael A. Davenport, the Shameless Chef. Let's talk about desserts, shall we? As the mind wanders, and this one does, a lot of desserts come to mind. Uh, not the incredible pastries of the Viennese persuasion, nor the French ones smacking of royalty past, uh, but some truly imaginative ones that I've been served from time to time, and as I think about it, not in restaurants, but at private dinners. Because at home, one usually spends more imagination than time and money on desserts. There are spectacular pies and torts and cakes and pastries that defy description, but then you'd want the recipe and there isn't time on the broadcast media, so let me whip off a few quickies for you. Sundays, for example. I once was treated to a Sunday smorgasbord. The hostess put out containers of about four different flavors of ice cream, a homemade ice cream, if you please, and supplied us with scoops for each one. Then there were glass containers of various Sunday toppings. It was chocolate and butterscotch and pineapple and boysenberry, strawberry, uh, a collection of liqueurs. Uh, then she added to that a variety of garnishes as well. There were Spanish peanuts and toasted almonds and walnuts and crushed toffee candy and crushed peppermint sticks. I think they were probably left over for some previous Yuletide. Oh, yeah, and a great bowl of fresh whipped cream. We all set to, made our own Sundays, and as I recall, we all had more than one, and we sampled each other's concoctions. I suggest this idea to you, for it requires little or no preparation if you don't want to create homemade ice cream, that is. I'd encourage you to serve fresh whipped cream, though, for you owe it to yourself and your guests. Now, if you're muttering deprecations about calories, well, that's too bad, because incredible as it may seem, the whole world isn't on a diet. Even so, everyone falls prey to sweet temptation now and then. By the way, does anybody know why the combination of ice cream and topping is called a sundae? Davenport here, the shameless and sweet-toothed chef. Cheers. We'll be back after this break. This episode is brought to you by Yolele, a revolutionary African foods company based in Brooklyn, New York. Yolele was founded by Senegalese chef, activist, and cookbook author Pierre Thiam. 
Yolele creates income opportunities for smallholder farming communities, supports their sustainable farming practices, and shares Africa's ingredients and cuisines with the world, starting with Fonio. Fonio is a delicious, nutrient-dense, gluten-free ancient West African grain. Fonio is also drought-resistant, so it's good for the planet. Yolele is creating a market for Fonio and other African crops grown under resilient farming systems to foster a more biodiverse, drought-tolerant landscape across West Africa. Try Yolele's Fonio, quick-cooking Fonio pilafs, and new Fonio chips, boldly flavored with the ingredients and flavors of West Africa. Sign up for their newsletter for recipes, notes from the field, and culinary discourse, and get a free bag of Fonio with your next order of $32 or more. Learn more at yolele.com. That's Y-O-L-E-L-E dot com. Welcome back to The Shameless Chef. Why do people shy away from making pie crust? This isn't all that frightening. Are there ghosts of mother or grandmother turning out light, flaky pie crusts that rival the angels? Is it that we've become so convenience food-oriented that we prefer to have our pie crust made by some machine in the depths of a food manufacturing plant? Well, this is The Shameless Chef. Believe me, pie crust is a snap. Oh, lordy, I've had some dismal pie crusts. They have ranged from the the down-where-the-rubber-meets-the-road variety to those that resemble nothing so much as cardboard left out overnight in the rain. Further, I've heard husbands berate wives for their incapacity to make pie crust, always comparing them with those crusts of the past done by some aged female relative, and I've been known to make pie crust that would rival any of the above in sheer culinary horror. That is until I learn how simple, how uncomplicated, and how unthreatening really superior pie crust can be. I'll share my incredibly simple secret with you. I remember merely two things. Everything having to do with pie crust should be cold, and handle the dough as little as possible. Now, ideally, I suppose, perfect pie crust could be made outdoors in cold weather, but such an extreme isn't necessary. Just be sure that the bowl is cold, that the shortening or the, the butter is cold, that the water is cold, and that your hands as well. Yes, use only your fingertips. Your palms are too hot. Old sweaty palms. You can use two knives or a pastry blender or a fork if you wish. Cold also. I like using my fingertips because I get the quick feel of the dough. Then chill the completed dough before you roll it. Put it in the pie pan. Chill it again before adding the filling or the baking. Bake it in a hot oven, 400 degrees or so, and you have it. Now, as to ingredients, consult any basic cookbook or write me here at the station, but quickly, it's easy. Pie crust is this. Two cups of sifted flour, three quarters of a cup of shortening or butter, a little salt, about three or four tablespoons full of ice water. Blend, form in a ball, chill and roll. Got it? Well, remember this above all else. Don't be intimidated by pie crust. It's only dough. Michael A. Davenport here. Some crust. You've heard me opine that weekends are wonderful not only because one usually isn't working nor are one's friends, but there's time to cook. 
Time to cook something elaborate and, and time-consuming. And what can be more time-consuming than pastry? And I mean pastry. Gloppy, sugary, meant to give the system a mild attack of sugar overkill. <laughs> this is the shameless chef with a sweet tooth run riot. The sound of my voice would give you no indication, but I'm, well, uh, if not skinny, that slender. I'm blessed with a metabolism that just does not go to fat, as they say. I can finish off a major entree and smack my lips over the gooey dessert that's coming. I got a glaze over my eyes like fine pottery when I pass an ice cream emporium that specializes in monumental sundaes. And so I, I like to cook such things. I don't know why, but the most disgustingly, obscenely sweet concoctions are usually chocolate. <laughs> my friend Bonnie does a thing she calls chocolate decadence, rightly named. I've got a recipe in my notes called Mississippi Mud, and it's just as gooey as the name implies, although infinitely sweeter. If you share my passion for sugar and chocolate, there are a couple of disasters I could recommend. In the annals of classic French cooking, there's a pastry known as a Boche de Noël, a, a Yule log, though not necessarily limited to serving at the holiday season, which seems to be the season for sugar plums and such. But when you finish the Boche de Noël, it has spun sugar moss, the touch of green weather provided by pistachio nuts, wee mushrooms made of sugar and marzipan, a bark of rich, dark chocolate, and inside there's a sort of jelly roll sponge cake, chocolate, filled with chocolate mocha cream. Now, that's butter, chocolate, coffee, and confectioner sugar. And the whole thing is coated with a bark of buttercream, dark chocolate, and chocolate liqueur. <laughs> Are you in sugar shock? Well, try it sometime. It takes almost a day to do and most of the week to recover from when you've eaten it. Then there's the aforementioned Mississippi mud. This simple concoction requires two kinds of chocolate, sugar, the usual cake ingredients, whipped cream, and marshmallow. Oh, come on. If you're dieting, I'm sorry. How about your friends? Don't they deserve a rich pastry masterpiece now and then? Michael A. Davenport here. If I have only one life to give, let me give it up in a flood of chocolate. Thank you so much for listening to our series. For more home cooking podcasts, check out HRN series like Cooking Issues, The Feed Feed, Modernist Breadcrumbs, and Pizza Quest. There are podcasts about food and beverage from across the country and around the world. We have Eat Your Heartland Out, Cooking in Mexican from A to Z, and Soul by Chef Todd Richards. There's Time for Lunch, a podcast for kids, and Meat in Three, a food storytelling podcast that any food lover and home cook is sure to love. You can find our full lineup of over 40 shows at heritageradionetwork.org. Plus, we'll drop some new episodes of the Shameless Chef feed in the coming weeks so you can get a taste of what else is in store at HRN. A big thank you to everyone who made this series possible. The Shameless Chef is produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Mike Schreiber, with podcast development and additional production by Kat Johnson. The original theme music for The Shameless Chef was composed by Chip Davis. Armin Spengen composed the theme music for this podcast. Thank you to Karina Andreatos and Alicia Chan and V. Duong for creating our vibrant artwork each week. 
The voice you heard throughout this episode was Michael Davenport, the host of The Shameless Chef, who unfortunately passed in 1985, but lived a truly vibrant life. The Shameless Chef is powered by Simplecast. The Shameless Chef is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.